the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on another installment uh, as we're in uh, day four of the trial of the century, and we've really moved beyond the the arguments that uh, House Democrats have to make as they've concluded their arguments about the abuse of power article. The obstruction of Congress article is laughable on its face. The abuse of power is a little bit more complicated. And uh, so let's focus on Adam Schiff's closing argument on Article 1 on Thursday and uh, his uh, uh, wonderful reading for the role of Atticus Finch in, or in uh, Aaron Sorkin's stage adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, this is Adam Schiff uh, uh, you, you're appealing to everyone's better angels. If right doesn't matter, if right doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how good the Constitution is. It doesn't matter how brilliant the framers were. It doesn't matter how good or bad our advocacy in this trial is. It doesn't matter how well written the oath of impartiality is. If right doesn't matter, we're lost. If the truth doesn't matter, we're lost. Framers couldn't protect us from ourselves if right and truth don't matter. And you know that what he did was not right. Now, wait for it. Uh, in a flourish that I'm sure Gregory Peck would have been jealous of, the hushed tones to close out his remarks. If you find him guilty, you must find that he should be removed because right matters, because right matters and the truth matters. Otherwise, we are lost. For a more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Adam Mill, if he can wipe the tears away from his eyes. He's an attorney specializing in labor and employment and public administration law, contributor to The Federalist, American Greatness, and The Daily Caller. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for all that you do for freedom. I uh, really appreciate what, you, what you're doing. Hey, I have one question for you, Dan. I know you're, you have a question for me, but I want to start with a question for you. Uh, sure. Was Adam was Adam Schiff talking about Donald Trump or was he talking about himself? Yeah, well, you I know, mean, you know, does truth matter? Is that coming? Did those words pass through Adam Schiff's lips? Honestly, really? The um, yes, the um, it's it's not even unself. I mean, I don't want to do the armchair psychoanalysis that uh, that's for pundits on CNN to do about the president's mental health state, but. Um, right. The idea here is that Adam Schiff and the Democrats have perfected to an art form this idea of projecting onto others their conduct. And uh, he did so again yesterday. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, you, you were asking me about my latest piece in uh, American Greatness, uh, which is titled The Untalented Mr. Schiff and His Unwatchable Vanity. And it's, you know, what I compare Adam Schiff to uh, this character from a series of unfortunate events named Carmelita Spatz. If you're not familiar with the series, you probably have someone in your family who's like stage child who performs at Thanksgiving dinners. And you're trying to watch the football game. You're trying to keep track of the score. And, and, and she goes on and on. And, 
and her mother recites Longfellow, and that, you know, in this case, that's played by the part of uh, Nancy Pelosi, and it's all just unwatchable. But it's all about ego. It's all about vanity. It's all about trying to you know, hog the camera as long as possible. So I just can't imagine what it must be like to be a senator sitting there it just imprisoned by this, by this never-ending hour after hour of these, of these ridiculous rhetorical speeches about a constitution that you know they never cite to any provisions. They just make it up as they go along. It's got to be torture. Well, right, and these are the same strict constructionists, as Dan Henninger pointed out in the journal the other day, who uh, have spent uh, much of the last three years talking about eliminating the Electoral College and packing the Supreme Court. Um, so, so, I mean, their you know, fealty to the Constitution uh, runs very hot and cold. Right. And if you look at North Korea, if you look at China, they have constitutions, too. And in fact, they're even modeled after the United States Constitution. The problem is, is that we, have, we are losing the culture, and it's coming from the left, of actually you know, using the Constitution the way it was written. For the left, what the Constitution means is whatever they say it means. Well, that's not the rule of law. That's the rule of man. And when you look at these made-up crimes that are being uh, used against the president, I mean, that's what the framers were really afraid of. They were afraid of a majority using its power to criminalize its, its political opponents. And, I, you know, I just have one question for Adam Schiff, if you were listening, which I know he's not. Uh, you know, where was Trump's immunity from being investigated as a candidate back in 2016? Is mm. that, if that's a thing, if, if, if Joe Biden is immune from having questions asked about this corruption of this triangle of corruption that he had with his son and his son's employer and you know Joe Biden's protection, you know, make my son rich and I'll protect you from prosecution. Uh, you know, where was where was Trump's protection? And, you know, of course, it only works one way. It's just, you know, if you have power, you use it uh, to to protect your people and punish uh, your political opponents. And that's that's what we're seeing. And that's what this impeachment hearing is, or trial is all about. Well, that's a really good point, too. I mean, it also goes to the arguments against politicians um, doing things that are, at least have an aspect of politics to them. I mean, it's sort of. Uh, with respect to Trump, we're supposed to take the wet out of water when it comes to politicians acting politically. But when it comes to, say, four senators who are running for president and sitting as jurors in a decision making authority over the future of the incumbent president, they seek to challenge and depose. There's no there's no there's no conflict of interest. There's no ethical concerns. No, there's nothing to see here. And, and Dan, uh, you know, think about this. Suppose you're Amy Klobuchar, you know, Senator Klobuchar. And you're, you know, you just got endorsed by the New York Times, and maybe you have a co-endorse, co-endorse, right, co-endorse, exactly. Maybe you have a shot at surging in Iowa. Uh, maybe you have a shot of, you know, being this dark horse candidate. The people above you are all very weak candidates. They all are very, very problematic. So where do you want to be? You want to be in Iowa. You want to be talking about health care. You want to be talking about, you know, the issues that people care about. And instead, this impeachment uh, trial is not even on the top 10 list of any voter, any survey they've done anywhere. And she's sitting there. She can't even use her cell phone. She can't even tweet. She can't reach her voters. She's being pulled off the campaign. She trail. can't have a now, beer. You know what a regular lady she right. is. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's uh, that, Elizabeth Warren's corner of the market on that. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I mean, who's interfering with the electoral process? I mean, this is a normal process. There's a legal way to get rid of Donald Trump, and that comes around in, 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 you know, in November of this year. Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, you know, these guys uh, love them or hate them. 
they're trying to use the process that was set out in the Constitution to get rid of Donald Trump. They don't like him. I'm, you know, God bless America. I wish him luck. And who's stopping him from doing that? Adam Schiff. This stupid impeachment trial is undermining our electoral process. He's doing exactly what he's accusing Donald Trump of doing. Uh, I wonder too. Uh, you know, the founders you mentioned uh, knew of the sort of partisan passions of the two parties and what. And, and tried to guard against that in crafting these impeachment provisions so that uh, impeachment didn't become, well, wasn't used as a tool the way it's being used right now. I wonder if they could have imagined, though, how the press corps would have folded in with one side uh, to, the, to the extent it, ha- it now has in the last three years, and including in reviewing Adam Schiff's uh, orator, uh, oratory skills. I mean, Jennifer Rubin, The Washington Post, uh, who is, uh, according to the Beltway Media, a conservative, she said it was the most brilliant legal presentation I've ever heard. None comes close. The tone, the facts, the anticipated defenses. I am in awe. Jeffrey Tubin, another dispassionate observer on CNN, legal analyst. I don't want to sound like a partisan. No heavens. Uh, but, that, <laughs> but, but, but that was the second best courtroom appearance he'd ever witnessed. Adam Schiff knows the facts. That is something you can't fake. And on and on and on examples like this. Yeah, I mean, I think the framers would have been very alarmed by the fact that, you know, it's one thing to have a a press that's biased, that's rooting for one team over another. Uh, These guys seem to operate off of a central hive. I mean, it's like there's a phone call, uh, you know, and and then they all just repeat the same talking points. And if you watch Tucker Carlson or if you, you know, you go to YouTube, there's always, you know, these these videos, these montages of them saying the exact same word, the exact same phrase over and over again on these supposedly independent networks. And it's a real problem. I mean, it's it's really harming our democracy. And what, what is Adam Schiff supposed to be doing right now? We've had all these intelligence scandals. He's, he's the head of the Intelligence Committee. We've had a, uh, uh, an FBI that lied to a FISA court that tried to frame uh, a presidential candidate with abuse of the NSA secret database. We've had you know, over and over again all these OIG reports that have come out, uh, opinions from the, the FISA court. And Adam Schiff's job is to be looking into that and holding hearings. And instead, he's he's running interference for the intelligence community. This guy, uh, Eric Ciermella, I think his name is. No, you're you're not allowed. You're guy. not allowed to say that name. You're not. That's, oh, that's I know. That is a, you know that's a abrogation of where is that uh, decency. Where is that written? <laughs> there's nothing. There's nothing in the whistleblower statute that says you're not allowed to utter the name of, course of, a, not. of a whistleblower. Of course there not. Is, there is something in the Sixth Amendment called the Confrontation Clause, which allows an accused person to be to confront and cross-examine his accuser. It's just, I mean, all these norms just get thrown out the the, the, uh, the window because it's Trump. And, you know, in the era of get Trump, there's only one rule. If it helps get Trump, then it's legal. Uh, speaking of uh, witnesses, when we come back, I want to ask you about witnesses with some new information that's uh, become public in the last couple of days and if that should change Republicans' calculus at all. We're talking to Adam Mill, who's an attorney specializing in labor, employment, and public administration law written a good piece in uh, Am Greatness, amgreatness.com, about Schiff. We'll be back with more Adam Mill right after this. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to attorney Adam Mill, who is a contributor to the Federalist, American Greatness, and the Daily Caller. And Adam, since you uh, said the name that shall not be spoken, Eric Cheramella, the uh, 
ostensible whistleblower. Another follow-up on the investigation that unearthed the name by Paul Sperry at RealClearInvestigations.com on said Chair Mella. He uh, reports that uh, Chair Mella, according to his sources, uh, in just uh, in, in, se- in 17, just uh, within a few uh, weeks of President Trump being sworn into office, days actually, just days after he was sworn in, but, uh, they were already talking about trying to get rid of him, said a White House colleague who overheard their conversation. They weren't just bet on subverting his agenda. They were plotting to actually have him removed from office. He's talking about Chiramella and uh, Sean Misko, both of who were Obama administration holdovers working in the Trump White House on foreign policy and national security issues. Uh, does does uh, does that change? Does that combine with all that's coming out about uh, Biden, Inc., from Peter Schweitzer's book to even allegations by Rudy Giuliani today? Does that change your perspective on whether or not it would be in Republicans best interest to open the floodgates of witnesses and and uh, and, and and delve into all of this and all of these individuals? Well, the uh, I mean, I take your point and, I, and I'll say that Paul Sperry, if if. Uh, uh, if the Pulitzer Prize were a fair process, he would have to, you know, buy extra wall space because that guy's. A, I mean, he's just been a, a hero to the republic. He's been so so wonderful. Um, but you know, the fear is is that we're going to have another Kavanaugh hearing. That basically right. it's going to be jump scare after jump scare. You know, oh, here comes Julie Swetnick. Here comes you know somebody about a boat off of the coast of Nantucket. And that these, you know, these surprise witnesses are going to come out of the woodwork. They're going to be, uh, you know, just these bombshell after bombshell. And the Senate doesn't want to get dragged into that. Now, having said that, what's really on trial here, Dan, is whether or not uh, being inside the velvet rope of the upper tier of the the, uh, two-tier justice system, you know, having a name like Biden or Clinton, uh, you know, does that does that confer some kind of immunity? Are you when you have that special position and the thing that's really got people so angry is this kind of triangle of corruption that uh biden had where he was getting his son rich by you know his son was getting rich by trading on his name i mean you could write hunter biden's resume on one of those fortune cookie slips that comes in a fortune cookie right i mean he only needs to say one thing my hunter right yeah right and and uh yes that biden right yeah yeah right right so, I mean, there are a lot of people. I mean, even some people are saying Pelosi is one of them who have family members who are getting rich off of this kind of stuff. And so when Trump started asking questions about this, they freaked out because, you know, this is going to be, uh, you know, this is, this, is, this is near and dear to their hearts. And there are a lot of, of um, uh, politicians and not just Democrats either. There are some Republicans out there that have something to worry about that are using their power to, to make their friends and family rich. I know that's gone on for a long time, but, you know, I mean, so I think I think there is some there there. And that makes Hunter relevant. That makes uh, Joe Biden relevant, because the fact of the matter is, if there's some there there, then Donald Trump had a legitimate law enforcement reason to ask about this corruption. And if he had a legitimate reason to do it, he's the president. He's the head of the executive branch, which, you know, prosecution is a core executive function. He has a right to ask about public official corruption. That's what they want to stop. That's what they want to chill. Right. And that's really, I think, the point of the whole thing. Right. And so so that, you know, and, and, and I, I think this is perhaps, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, perhaps dangerously tempting, as I've said before, dangerously attractive with the emphasis on the adverb dangerously. Uh, but 
the idea that the Democrats don't really want witnesses because they've made clear they don't want Joe Biden to testify. He made clear again his latest position is that he doesn't want to testify or be any part of part of any witness exchange. And so should we give Democrats, should they give Democrats what they say they want, even though they don't really want it? And uh, perhaps uh, not only expose all those things that people want exposed because they're tired of this sort of kleptocracy with our own oligarchs, um, but also it, it would end likely end Joe Biden in 2020. And the Democrats are left with probably then your uh, your red diaper uh, candidate and Bernie Sanders. Uh, you may you may be onto something. What should have happened is uh, if the Democrats wanted witnesses, I mean, look, if this were a trial, you're a lawyer, Dan. Um, if you were going to trial, you know, what does a judge ask you on the day of trial? He asks you if you're ready for trial. Now, if you've had problems with discovery, you know, the other side isn't turning over witnesses or documents, you would say, no, I'm not ready for trial, judge. I need you to um, to straighten out some of these disputes that we're having in, in discovery, which is exactly what should have happened. Mitch McConnell gave a brilliant speech to, just to that point. And now, so when they get to the Senate uh, trial, uh, if they want these witnesses, what has to happen or what should happen, and according to the Senate rules, what will happen if they're going to be witnesses, is they're going to pause and they're going to take these witnesses' depositions in private uh, with the president's uh, attorney present, not like the the, the, the skiff room with the uh, shift used. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then and then the Senate will decide whether to admit those transcripts. Uh, there won't be you know live witnesses testifying on the you know in front of in front of the television camera most likely. Uh, it'll just be you know additional depositions that are that are entered into evidence. So, I mean, if, if that happens, uh, they're not going to get their big, like, televised moment. Uh, I wanted to get your reaction to an interesting Twitter exchange. That's not something you get to say all the time. Uh, the, a comment was made uh, uh, that Robbie George, the great Princeton law professor, responded to. The comment was, as they see things, progressives, by definition, can, cannot suffer a legitimate political defeat. Thus, they're forever trying to unwind the 2016 election and people forget uh, trying to unwind the 2000 election, the 2004 election and so forth. A Robbie George response to that was, I think I can explain roughly why in progressive theology, the great God history moves in the progressive direction. The next development, whatever it is, is supposed to follow the progressive script. When it fails to do that, the God has been defied. It's a kind of blasphemy. How do you react to that? Yeah, I, 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 I think that there's something to that. And, you know, to another point, uh, one of the president's lawyers made the point that if Schiff prevails, he's not only going to uh, uh, remove the president and unwind the 2016 election, they will, at this late stage, uh, remove the president from the ballot. Right. So there will effectively only be one choice on the ballot. Well, that's, you know, that's the kind of elections the Democrats want, is these kind of Soviet elections in which everyone is forced to participate. They all have these great fanfare, but there are either no serious candidates. Uh, you know, I think in some of these elections, the, the opposition to Putin has endorsed Putin himself. Uh, or yeah. or, or there no, there's no alternatives whatsoever. I mean, it, it was just, you know, you were basically given a yes or no on the old Soviet-style elections. So, I mean, it's just it's ironic. I mean, somebody should revoke their name, Democrat Party. I mean, they obviously have no confidence in the process, so they wouldn't be doing this. He is Adam Mill. He's an attorney specializing in labor, employment and public administration law. He's a contributor to The Federalist. 
American Greatness and The Daily Caller. I will tweet out at Dan Prof Show his uh, very good piece in American Greatness, AmericanAmGreatness.com. Adam, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. And the last time I walked in the swamp, I sat up on a cypress stump. I listened close and I heard the ghost of Osceola cry. Listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show and uh, report art this week about customs and border protection, rolling out facial recognition programs at ports of entry across the country, including the nation's international airports. Now the agency increasing the use of the technology, facial recognition, for its optional global entry program, which allows frequent travelers who are considered low risk to bypass Customs and Border Protection officers to go directly to baggage claim after visiting a kiosk. To date, global entry at most airports consists of scanning the traveler's passport and fingerprint at the machine before being cleared to enter the country. Going forward, Customs and Border Protection will be streamlining that process, instead offering travelers pre-approved pre-approval, well, travelers that are pre-approved through the program, the ability to use facial biometrics for clearance, eliminating the need for the passport or the fingerprint. This uh, brave new world of uh, facial facial recognition that coincides with the real ID mandate uh, that uh, people around the country, where I live in Illinois and where James Bovard lives in Maryland and everywhere else, will need to be real ID compliant by October of this year if they want to fly and if they don't have an alternative form of identification like a passport. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by James Bovard, who's the author of Lost Rights, Attention Deficit Democracy, and Public Policy Hooligan. He's also a USA Today columnist, and he has uh, written a piece at theamericanconservative.com about how real ID is being rammed down the throats of Americans. James, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. Well, uh, you have a rather uh, entertaining write-up at the outset of your piece about your experience with the Maryland, uh, well, what we call the DMV in Illinois, which you call the MVA. Uh, w- tell us about that. Well, yeah, so about uh, six months ago, I started getting these letters from the uh, Maryland Motor Vehicle Administration telling me that, that I had to come in and uh, prove my identity, bring in all these papers, because of real ID, and they were... You know, the letters became more and more threatening, and uh, I just kind of figured uh, uh, I'd heard the same thing which you'd heard, is that uh, if people don't have a real ID, then they won't be allowed to fly here inside the U.S. I wasn't concerned about that because I have a U.S. passport, so I figured, eh, go away. But then I was uh, checking with some folks, and a friend pointed out that what Maryland is doing is canceling thousands of people's driver's licenses simply because they fail to show up and, and offer, um, uh, offer new proof of their identity. Uh, and a person, you know, the, uh, people whose licenses are being canceled are not suspected of being uh, illegal aliens or have making false claims, but it's simply because the uh, Maryland is dropping the hammer on people with driver's licenses to make the uh, Federal Department of Homeland Security happy. 
Right. And so uh, and, and I know, you know, and people probably have forgotten this, but back in uh, 05, when this uh, a mandate was initiated and, and sort of again implemented over the course now of the ne- next 15 years, there was uh, a lot of concern about it. There was a lot of opposition, but it seems like they're, uh, you know, they're they're choosing the proverbial uh, boiling the frog strategy. And now as we become more accustomed to this kind of surveillance state, as we become more accustomed even to uh, the advances in identification, biometric and facial recognition technology, uh, this is not generating uh, much concern that I've, you know, that at least not that I'm detecting. Yeah, um, that's a good summary. And it's, it, there was a lot of opposition from conservatives and liberals uh, um, back in 2005 onwards. Uh, Congressman Ron Paul was a, a point man on Capitol Hill against this. Uh, but as time has passed, people have kind of shrugged it off. And basically what the feds, uh, feds are doing is using, the, uh, using TSA to uh, compel states to um, kowtow the federal demands because uh, TSA says that they won't let people fly after October if they don't have a real ID um, compliant uh, driver's license or passport. Part of the irony here is that is that the feds are seizing all this new power to intrude into people's lives, but the feds are not doing anything to make TSA more competent. And the inspector general tests have found that TSA screeners miss 95% of the mock bombs and weapons that testers take past them. So TSA is still going to be a farce, but uh, folks have to count out of these federal information demands. Uh, when we come back, I want to uh, pick up that discussion. So competence of TSA is an issue. But what are the other issues, uh, Orwellian concerns, maybe, of these uh, of real ID mandates and the in, the uh, continued growth of facial recognition technology? We're talking to James Bovard, columnist uh, with USA Today, the author of a number of books, including Lost Rights and Public Policy Hooligan. We'll be back with more James Bovard right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with James Bovard on the Dan Proft Show here, talking about this piece that he's written for the AmericanConservative.com, how Washington is ramming real ID down our throats. And uh, so, you know, what, what's the... What's the problem uh, from your perspective, James? What's the concern that you have with uh, the real ID, the facial recognition uh, technology, its use by government agencies? Well, the, the, uh, the government, both at state and local levels, uh, uh, at the federal and state levels, has not been honest in how this stuff is playing out. The, uh, the uh, Real ID Act uh, compels states to get a mandatory facial image capture for every driver's license applicant. And these are being uh, compiled in these vast databases. The FBI is tapping into a, a database with 600 million facial photos, um, and um, it's they've they've been secretive about how this was built and, and how they're using it. Um, another concern is that at any point down the road, 
the feds could uh, suddenly announce that they need more information. For instance, uh, DNA samples. The Justice Department announced earlier this month that they're going to start collecting DNA from anyone, including U.S. citizens, who's detained at the U.S. border. That's almost a million people a year to start with. And um, back when Real ID was pushed through, a lot of folks said, hey, this is going to be the next step. You know, uh, the feds are going to demand retina scans, DNA swabs, and, and the feds are doing this. They haven't mandated for Real ID yet, but, you know, a part of what's changed since the time the Real ID Act was passed in 2005 is there's a lot more surveillance apparatus around here right now. Um, for instance, here in Maryland, there are the the, uh, uh, the police cars have almost 500 license plate scanners, and those scanners generate almost half a billion scans every year of drivers' uh, license plates. So if if uh, so so if the word comes down from Washington that the, um, um, the that the feds want the states to enforce um, DNA samples, uh, basically Maryland would only have to push a few buttons. The show in, in the uh, with the license plate scanners, which uh, uh, which cars have drivers who have not complied with the latest mandate, and that's what can ha- that's what may happen down the road here in Maryland, as far as the people who don't rush to the MVA offices to provide more uh, more identification on who they are. Um, I was I was trying to get information from this from the Motor Vehicle Administration spokesman here in Maryland, but. Those folks failed to give me uh, make any response to my press inquiries. So you're you're worried that this, uh, to borrow from Yakov Shmirnov, this becomes a situation where in in America you go to party in Soviet Russia, party go to you, and uh, this sort of the same thing is that this is being going to be used to control people, and uh, if there's a mandate that you fail to abide, then you can be scanned while you're driving. You, they can run through databases and identify and group and search out individuals for um, for DNA collection, for uh, failure to get a real ID card, for whatever. Right, and there's there's another peril here. I mean, the, the feds have claimed that, that uh, getting all this data and putting it in these massive databases is going to help, help keep America safe, but uh, it's simply, you know, uh, uh, here in Maryland there's been a crime wave by Motor Vehicle Administration employees who have taken that information and used it to create false false identification cards for illegal aliens and others. There has been one. Uh, uh, there have been so many scandals and, uh, uh, here at the MVA that the U.S. Attorney might as well set up a branch office at the MVA to uh, speed up the bookings of MVA clerks. And, and then you also have the issue of concern about uh, the. Uh, uh, uh the ability of hackers to hack into these systems and get all kinds of uh, data on people that they otherwise couldn't have if it wasn't being kept. Absolutely. I mean, uh, that's something that happened to the Federal Office of Personnel Management. Somebody uh, scooped up 19 uh, million personal confidential files on people, and it's like uh, there's no reason to trust these folks to be competent with the information which they're commandeering. There's an interesting piece in the New York Times uh, that sort of flies in formation with this, talking about a this tiny company that might end privacy as we know it. It's a company called Clearview AI, as in artificial intelligence. 
and they've developed a groundbreaking facial recognition app. You can take a picture of a person, upload it, and then get to see public photos of that person along with links to, to where those photos appeared. So it essentially aggregates all of the photos of the person from, uh, from Facebook, YouTube, Venmo, millions of other websites, goes far beyond anything constructed by the, the government or, frankly, other Silicon Valley giants. And, uh, and, and uh, AI technology like this is being treated with some, some trepidation in Europe where there's a proposal for a five-year moratorium. But even in Europe, that's a five-year moratorium excluding law enforcement. So law enforcement, you know, so so law enforcement is still, you know, the law enforcement is looking at this here, according to the New York Times report, and the same thing is happening overseas. Yeah, and, and this this is snowballing. This is something that Congress has not paid attention to. This is something which the um, um, the federal court should be raising questions on. But instead, it's just like layer after layer of a of a state which is a total surveillance state. Uh, it, it's, leap, it's leaping towards what the uh, Bush administration in 2002 talked about, achieving total information awareness. But you've got to keep in mind it's total inf- inf- information awareness that the government has on the people, but the people aren't allowed to know what the government is doing. Yeah. Um, maybe this is a hopeful note, this, uh, uh, this civil action, multi-billion dollar uh, class action lawsuit filed against Facebook, Facebook v. Patel is the case hinging on the question of whether Facebook violated Illinois law when it implemented a photo tagging feature that recognized users' faces and suggested their names without ab- uh, obtaining adequate consent, the Supreme Court uh, declining to take up this uh, court battle this week. Maybe uh, if Facebook gets its hand slapped in this class action suit, uh, maybe we have a renewed conversation about uh, these privacy issues we've been raising. Uh, maybe so, but uh, Facebook gets its way almost every time. So, I'm, you know, I'm not sanguine on that. Well, there is that. He is James Bovard. He's the author of Lost Rights, Attention Deficit Democracy, and Public Policy Hooligan. He is also a USA Today columnist. And check out his piece at the American Conservative, AmericanConservative.com. How Washington is ramming real ID down our throats. James Bovard, thanks for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks a lot. I enjoyed it. Take care. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And there's a couple of uh, new legislative measures I'm a little bit confused by. One in my home state of Illinois, the other in uh, Oakland at the city of Oakland level. In Illinois, in the infinite wisdom of the Democrats who control the oh, all three branches of government here, really, supermajorities in the General Assembly, of course, governor and the state Supreme Court, the governor recently sending legislation that would allow high school students to take up to two hours off from school on election day so that they could vote. What's the confusion there? Well, you got polls open in Illinois from 6 a.m. to 7 p.m. You don't start school till what, at the earliest, 8, 8.30? So you have two hours to vote before class. Then you get out at, what, 2.33? So then you have like three to four hours after 
school to vote. That's certainly more time than most people who work on Election Day and find time to vote. So for our 18-year-olds who are young adults who we're uh, ceding authority to make uh, policy with respect to Second Amendment rights or with respect to industrialization, industrial policy vis-a-vis climate change. They can't manage that? Odd. You know, this this the whole thing with the left. I'm, I'm forever trying to understand their arbitrary age strictures. So you can serve our country, you can vote at 18, you can't smoke a cigarette now to 21, marijuana is 21, some states gun ownership is 21, some states it's 18. That's just confusing to me. Not, and in addition to that, of course, we know that Nancy Pelosi and company want to lower the voting age to 16. Uh, why not just um, allow these kids to designate proxies for their votes and just have their teachers, teachers union vote for them? Have the governor vote for them. Just aggregate their votes and we'll just mark out the number of votes you want from a particular school. Uh, since we're trying to get to full Soviet elections in Illinois. So I'm confused about that. Also in Oakland, there is a measure that passed the city council unanimously banning the ability of landlords to perform criminal background checks on rental applicants. Unanimous vote. Uh, you can't do a background check on a prospective renter. So here again, so we want background checks, criminal background checks on people so that we make sure criminals can't get guns. But a landlord, perhaps living in the same space, and even if he or she isn't, other people living in the same space, say if it's a multifamily place, can't perform a criminal background check on a prospective applicant so people go in with eyes wide open or so that there's some knowledge of forethought about who you're renting to. I mean, I'm all for second chances, but how about some pertinent information about the individual that you're going to turn over your private property to? See, that seem reasonable? Well, don't forget, uh, this is the same Oakland where you have Mayor Libby Schaff, who uh, you may recall came to national prominence when she started to engage in signaling to warn persons in her city that are in this country illegally about an upcoming ICE raid, which is actually aiding, abetting a criminal enterprise, and she could have been prosecuted. Of course, she wasn't. I'm just curious. I, so we want to protect people from criminals. They can't, they should, and they shouldn't obtain guns, but we don't want to protect people from criminals so much so that we should check them out before we turn over our private property to them and put them in close proximity to uh, other people. I mean, think about somebody who might be on the sexual offenders list and somebody else in that multifamily housing unit that may have a child. You don't want to know? Really? You want to be willfully blind to that? Left is very confusing. This is the Dan Prof Show. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Prof Show. This is an interesting new book. Tightrope is the name of the book, as I said, Americans Reaching for Hope. The authors are Nicholas Kristof, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning columnist for The New York Times, his wife, Cheryl Udun. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, our pleasure. So, you know, we've talked a lot about, I think, some of the themes that are in your book. Richard Friedman actually had an op-ed in The New York Times uh, the other week about the trend upward in suicide of young people. We started to go through some of the suggested reasons why that may be the case and dismiss 
dismissed many of them. And there seems to be something that is also present in J.D. Vance's book, Hillbilly Elegy, about Appalachia, with respect to towns that have suffered during the Great Recession. And with respect to young people, there seems to be this commonality, which is there's a sense that something important is missing within them. And I wonder if how, how you sort of tackle that as you look yeah. at a town in Oregon that's in that sort of, sort of the same situation. Look, uh, suicide rates are at a high since World War II, but you also have drug overdoses at a high. Um, you have alcohol deaths at a high end rising. And I think at some point these are symptoms of something larger, and that's something of a great social depression now. It seems strange to refer to a Great Depression at a time when the economy is doing so well and stock market is hitting highs. But there are huge shares of Americans who are not doing well. And so we tell this story in part through the kids who were on my old school bus in rural Oregon, little town of Yamhill, Oregon, is you know deeply beloved to me. And a quarter of those kids who were on the bus with me have died from drugs, alcohol, and suicide and related pathologies. And you know that wasn't one town's, that's a nation's problem. Life expectancy is actually falling in the U.S. now for three years in a row, which didn't happen during the Great Depression, which hasn't happened actually in 100 years. So, you know, there's a deep malaise there, and it can't be addressed just as a suicide matter, just as a drug matter, but it has to be addressed as a broader Great Depression out there afflicting many Americans. So there's the issue of of family disintegration, but there's there's still this nagging problem of even when there isn't family disintegration, even when it isn't economically driven. So it's been pointed out uh, by a number of op-ed writers that the rate of suicide among young people in Silicon Valley is 6x the national average. So these are young people that are coming from well-to-do environments right? and, and not facing the economic hardships you're describing in this uh, town in rural Oregon. So, so there's something else going on. There's a lot going on. And I think it's a tale of two Americas. Certainly in Silicon Valley, the young kids may be, I don't know what their socioeconomic background is, but it could be that they're feeling a lot of pressure to perform, and that's a terrible situation. But in general, the suicides are coming in certain areas. Uh, There's been some really interesting data by um, Angus Deaton and and Case 2 economists at Princeton who have looked at census data. They have looked at, mapped out where a lot of these suicides from what they call depths of despair are coming from, and they tend to be in the more disadvantaged, afflicted areas, the ones that voted for Trump. It, this is, it is a nationwide problem. And, you know, there are individual circumstances in each case. In general, we are not seeing this in countries abroad, our peer countries. You know, every country has some suicide. Every country has some drug overdose and, and deaths related to alcohol, but not nearly to the degree that the U.S. does. It seems to me, too, in our political discourse, uh, both parties uh, for a long time were sort of dismissive of the lives of people who who weren't in their social circles. So Mitt Romney, I think, is a fairly good example where it, the emphasis was like everybody should become an entrepreneur. Well, not everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. And fast forward to today, and it's Joe Biden telling coal miners that if they can go 2,000 feet below the Earth's surface, then they can learn how to code. Uh, it's just very dismissive of people who are living lives different than many of the elites in public office and heading up the civic institutions that are supposed to form the backbone of our civilization. I think that's Exactly right. And, you know, there is a lot of talk in the political system about middle class, and that's important. 
because, you know, the middle class is to some degree being hollowed out. There's not a lot of talk at all about the working class, those kind of one notch down. That's a term that really doesn't get mentioned. Uh, there's a lot of talk about improving college access, which is critical. We need to do that. But there's very little conversation about the fact that one in seven kids still doesn't graduate from high school. You know, if you don't graduate from high school in 2020, you are cooked. You know, it, perhaps uh, Joe Biden's comment seemed dismissive. I actually didn't hear him say it. But on the other hand, at least he's trying to reach out to these coal miners and say, we need to retrain you. And, and that is a really key point, is retraining for jobs that are being lost. Yes, globalization is affecting the U.S. It did affect other countries as well. But in Canada and Western Europe, you had much better retraining programs so that you can take some of these people who were laid off in these older industries and really focus on retraining them for jobs that are in demand in their local areas. And we just don't take that very seriously. But I think part of it is that there's some disagreement about whether these old industries should disappear. And this was sort of part Trump's rhetoric about revitalizing the steel industry and so on and so forth, whether you agree with the tariff policy as the way to do that or not. And I don't. Nonetheless, the idea that we shouldn't be self-sufficient with respect to energy policy and, and the old Midwest industrial base, there's some disagreement. You know, there are guys that are 50 years old and have been in a coal mine for 30 years. They're not necessarily going to warm to your job is over. Now you go learn how to code. And I think the way that they're addressed is highly disrespectful. I, I think there is a point there and that what a lot of these workers want is not sympathy, but is dignity, uh, is respect. You're right on that. But I do think that it's also true that we need to do a better job of thinking ahead about retraining. And one example that we use in Tightrope is of auto workers who lost their jobs in both Detroit and across the border in Windsor, uh, Canada, during the Great Recession. On the U.S. side, we essentially extended unemployment benefits. On the Canadian side, what they focused on was offering retraining. It was about starting job fairs and telling people, you know, kind of bluntly that, look, you know, you're a welder, but we don't anticipate there's going to be a lot of need for welders in Ontario in the coming decades. However, there is going to be a need for healthcare workers, and we can help you get a job in healthcare. We can start you retraining on Monday, and then you can, you know, work in a local hospital one day a week. And you're right that it's not for everybody. It's hard to reimagine oneself. But at the end of the day, that experiment on the Canadian side versus Detroit side meant that those workers on the Canadian side were much better off and their families less affected by breakdown, by self-medication and so on. I wanted to get your take because I know in the book, uh, Tightrope, that you talk about sort of case studies of these um, little platoons of democracy that have helped people turn their lives around when perhaps they have made bad decisions, they've been in a bad family environment, and that put them in a, on a bad path to make some of those bad decisions. Um, we certainly have talked to a number of people like that on this show, and one example is John Ponder, just to put a face to it from my perspective. John Ponder, who spent most of his life in prison between the age of 12 and 38, and after he uh, got out the last time, devoted his life to Christ, actually, he started a program called Hope for Prisoners in Las Vegas, and one of the insights he had was partnering ex-offenders with law enforcement in a sort of a mentorship relationship. So there was a, a bond of trust that was actually built between them. 
18-month intensive program, and over the last uh, half a dozen years now, the recidivism rate for Hope for Prisoners graduates is like 6%, which is, of course, a fraction of the overall recidivism rate in the country. And so there are these people that are doing innovative things at the local granular level that could be replicated and scaled. Absolutely. We actually talk about one program in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in Tightrope, and it's a remarkable one called Women in Recovery. It takes women who, it actually diverts them from prison where, yes, they have committed crimes, but it says, look, what we understand is that the reason you committed the crime is because the underlying reason is that you actually have an addiction and we actually want to treat your addiction. They put them in this two-year program. They have to commit to it. They have to go every single day and they go through therapy. They go through classes. It helps them reintegrate back into society. And again, the recidivism rate from that program is like 4% over three years. It's really amazing. And exactly, these are the types of programs we need to replicate around the country. And we can't just do that with personal philanthropy. We need something much more systematic. And, and so what, what does that look like, the program in Tulsa or the program I mentioned in Vegas? How do we scale those type of programs that have proven up to be successful models? Well, right now, they this program in Tulsa, they are collecting 10 years data. They don't have quite 10 years yet, but they are building a template so that it can just be adopted by other cities. And around the country, there are major cities that are adopting similar programs that basically divert people from prison when they know that what the people really need is mental health services or or drug treatment uh, because it's a much more effective and cost-saving program in the end when you don't have to keep someone in prison for all those years. The high cost of the drug treatment is, is not great in the first few years, but it pays off in the long run. And so there is a recognition that it has to be, um, you know, spread around more, but we need much more support uh, and resources from the federal government to uh, to somehow partner with local localities. The book is Tightrope, America Reaching for Hope. The author is Nicholas Kristof, Pulitzer Prize winning columnist for the New York Times, his wife Cheryl Wudun. Nicholas Kristof and Cheryl Wudun, thanks so much for joining us and good luck with the book. Thank Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. show and uh, a special edition of Campus Beat. We're pleased to have Nicole Neely. She is the president of an organization called Speech First, and uh, they uh, most recently filed a suit against Iowa State University, uh, a free speech suit, as you would uh, gather by their name. Uh, And this was on behalf of uh, policies that uh, they argue infringe upon students' First Amendment rights on campus. This is not dissimilar to uh, another suit that was filed this week uh, uh, by the uh, Alliance for Defending Freedom against Montclair State University in New Jersey for shutting down a peaceful gun rights demonstration on campus last year. For more on this entire topic area of the campus as a true free marketplace of ideas, as a free speech safe zone campus-wide, 
We're pleased to be joined by Nicole Neely, president of Speech First. Nicole, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So give us the basis of uh, the Iowa State, the suit that uh, your organization has filed against Iowa State University uh, out there in Ames uh, as sort of an example of the work that you do and the, the problem you come in, uh, you uh, run into on college campuses routinely. Sure. So we, um, we believe that Iowa State University has three policies in the book that have both the purpose and the effect of chilling student speech. So, you know, most universities are not, let's say, dumb enough to just throw out banned speech. They know that that would be challenged. So instead, they use what I call weasel words to try and ban offensive language or biased or hateful language. And the problem is that's very broad, it's very vague, it's widely interpretable. And Iowa State University is a public university. They're not able to pick winners and losers and ban speech. They're a state actor. They must uphold the First Amendment, period. And we believe that they have not done so. Um, the three policies that we've challenged at Iowa State are the school has a ban on chalking, writing on sidewalks with chalk, um, a ban on sending emails uh, that support a political candidate or ballot initiative from your school email account, and then they also have a program in place called a campus climate response system. Um, at other schools, we've seen them called bias response systems. Um, and this is a system where the school has a portal on their website where they encourage students to tattletale on each other um, anonymously, if they so choose, for speech that they deem biased or hateful again. Um, and that's very much in the eye of the beholder. And so what we have seen, um, the program has only been around at Iowa State for about a year. The kinds of speech that end up getting reported are very often political and religious speech. And so those programs are supposed to scare students into just keeping their head down, keeping their mouth shut, not discussing controversial topics. And, you know, this is, these students deserve better, um, and the school is not able to pick winners and losers just based on the content of, of the speech. So that's why we decided we have to take the school to court. Well, and, and I want to uh, talk a little bit more about those bias response teams, because uh, as uh, I understand it, there are more than... 230 universities, colleges with bias response teams. And this operates very much like the lives of others. You know, anonymous complaint, then you get noticed up that you're being essentially surveilled by the university system in some measure. And there's going to be some uh, determination made on the uh, the, the the worthiness of the claim against you. But it's all it seems to me, uh, it, it, as this plays out in practice, that it's all very stilted against the person who's been accused. Uh, it, it sort of runs afoul of any notion we have of due process uh, in our country more generally. Absolutely. And I think the Stasi is a great comparison in East Germany um, because, yeah, you are students are reporting on each other. And if, if the goal of this is to try and foster a sense of community on campus, I think this directly undermines that. If I think that the person next to me might report on me for making a joke, um, you know, saying some expressing an opinion, some offhand comment, I'm going to think twice before I actually talk about anything that might be controversial. And so sadly, you know, the window of accessible discourse on college campuses is so narrow. Um, yeah, there are hundreds of schools around the country that have this. Um, that report that you cite is from the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. That was from 2017. I think, you know, if anything, there are more, more schools now. today that have it. Well, so This it, is actually the fourth lawsuit we filed challenging this policy. We've also sued the University of Michigan, University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, which is my alma mater, and University of Texas at Austin, which is my husband's alma mater. Um, so, yeah, these programs... Um, Usually the wording that they'll say when they ask a student to fill out a report, they'll advertise them online. Um, they'll say, you know, they'll call people the offender. I mean, there is this presumption of guilt, of bias, that 
nobody wants to be accused of being biased. And then if you get a note from your administration that says a report has been filed against you, come in. Um, the schools have claimed that these are voluntary proceedings, but how voluntary does it feel when these bias response teams are made up of university officials? Well, and also police often. Provost. Yeah. It's and, terrifying. And also the social stigmatization. Once word gets out, these are, you know, self-contained universes, generally a lot of smaller schools. You know, not every school is as big as Ohio State. So then there's the social stigma associated with the accusation. And the the irony of this, too, is a system that incentivizes uh, against precisely what all of these university commissars say they're for, which is tolerance. It actually incentivizes the intolerant against the tolerant. Yeah. Um, many of these schools put out annual reports or ongoing logs. And so, yeah, it's very easy to reverse engineer and figure out, oh, that was a college Republican. Oh, that was this event. Oh, it's this person. And so you're right. The stigma is a very powerful tool. Um, and so, yeah, students even – so you're called in – let's say you're called in a report's been made about you. Um, even if your speech is constitutionally protected, it ends up being punishment by process. It's a hassle. It's terrifying. It's a distraction from your studies. As you alluded to, there's no due process. You're not there with a lawyer. You're not there with your parents. Um, you're told, uh, and you know, a complaint has been made against you. You don't know who made it. You can't defend against it. You can't cross-examine that person. And so um, students, just when they learn about these programs, they think, you know what, this is not worth the hassle. I'm well, just not going to do anything that would drag me through this proceeding to start with. I think it's a bureaucratic star chamber. It's awful. Well, and, he, and here's the uh, another angle into this, too. Uh, University of Oklahoma has this this race workshop that uh, the College Fix reported on this week. And uh, the National Conference on Race and Ethnicity in American Higher Education will feature a pre-conference session led by an educational consultant who believes being on time is a form of white supremacy. Uh, this uh, organization started in 88. It's a function University of Oklahoma Southwest Center for Human Rights of Human Relations Studies. And uh, the, uh, per, the, you know, the person in question uh, is a woman named Heather Hackman. These consultants that come on c- campuses to uh, instruct in uh, things like white supremacy, to, to basically do these race grievance studies, uh, race grievance seminars in addition to the race grievance programs on college campus. So then they're doing this provocative programming. And if you don't fall in line or at least keep silent, now you expose yourself to being reported for some sort of bias because you don't subscribe to the idea that being on time is a term of a form of white supremacy. Right. Well, that's what we saw at Evergreen State a couple years ago when Brent, um, Brent Weinstein spoke out and said, I, I don't think my students, you know, I think it's awful to tell students to not show up. It was a day of white absence. Right. Um, he was branded a racist because he wanted his students and he wanted to be able to go to class and teach. And that was that was viewed as white supremacy as well. Um, so it's, just, it's, it's like through the looking glass. Up is down and down is up. She is Nicole Neely. She's the president of Speech First. Uh, continue to pay attention to their work trying to fight for, uh, well, free speech rights on college campuses. It's a good place to start. Nicole, thanks so much for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Thank you. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I just want to follow up on the conversation we had before the break with 
Nicole Neely of uh, Speech First and uh, an example, real world example of something that's a bit of an aphorism. First, they come for the Second Amendment and then they come for the first or we have a Second Amendment in order to protect our First Amendment rights. However way you want to look at it, Dateline, Virginia. uh, Here we go again. End of the week from their Monday rally of twenty five thousand peaceful law abiding gun owners. And uh, what did the Virginia legislature do? Well, the day after or a couple of days after the rally, they moved to pass the very bills that were being protested, of course, a middle finger to those that were gathered for the lobby day that turned into a national event. The day after that gathering, the state Senate advanced legislation that would allow authorities to take away guns from people deemed dangerous to themselves or others. This is the their version of the so-called red flag law. The bill had been passed in previous Senate sessions. Uh, including uh, uh, when the Senate passed three other gun bills, universal background checks, one handgun a month, granting local governments the authority to ban weapons permitted during uh, or or at events and in public spaces. But the red flag laws are where I want to focus and what that led to. Any attorney for the Commonwealth or any law enforcement officer could go before a court judge or magistrate for an emergency order to seize guns. And this is what we talked about in the wake of a lot of the mass shootings and the prospect of a red flag law open-mindedness to the red flag law, but it's got to be narrowly tailored because if it's not, you open up all sorts of unintended consequences, the possibility for them. SB 240 in Virginia doesn't state who is allowed to have an attorney act on their behalf. Immediate family members, teacher, coworker, neighbor, how about a Facebook or Twitter stranger from out of state with an ax to grind? Uh, in Colorado, they, uh, there's a citation of a woman who filed a petition against a restricting of his uh, ability to own a gun, possess a gun. A woman filed a petition against a police officer uh, earlier this month as revenge for his justified shooting of her son in 2017. So, you know, the reasonable idea, the narrowly tailored idea, immediate family as an option to take emergency action against an at-risk member of the family. And what it's being what that is being used as by the the ill-intended, like, say, KKK Northam and the Virginia Democrat Minstrel Party is to make it a general confiscation, gun confiscation racket. Due process rights, safety are secondary. In point of fact, uh, in passing the one gun a month bill, a state senator in Virginia, Democrat, 12 handguns a year is more than enough for most citizens. If you need more than go to Texas, they don't have any laws. That's the attitude. And you remember the hot mic moment for a couple of uh, legislators when you did have hearings on these legislative measures. This is how they reacted to uh, pro Second Amendment types coming to testify and share their opinions with their duly elected legislators. They're just like little kids, you know, as long as we don't respond to them, just humor them, let them have their say and otherwise dismiss them out of hand, actually dismiss them beforehand. And so back to my original point, they come for the second, then the first is sure to follow legislation introduced House Bill 1627 introduced by a Democrat delegate in Virginia named Jeffrey Bourne uh, that would punish dissent criminalized dissent against public officials. 
If any person with the intent to coerce, intimidate, or harass any person shall use a computer or computer network to communicate obscene, vulgar, profane, lewd, lascivious, or indecent language, or make any suggestion or proposal of an obscene nature or threaten any illegal or immoral act, he shall be guilty of a class one misdemeanor. Uh, this, a, a violation of this section may be prosecuted in the jurisdiction in which the communication was made or received or, or in the city of Richmond if the person subjected to the act is one of the following officials or employees of the Commonwealth. The governor, governor-elect, lieutenant governor, lieutenant governor-elect, attorney general, attorney general-elect, member or employee of the General Assembly, justice of the Supreme Court of Virginia, or judge of the Court of Appeals of Virginia. So in other words, if you communicate something they determine to be obscene or indecent, they can arrest you in Virginia. I guess uh, Northam will be adding more dollars to the DOC budget yet still after he did so in anticipation of of prosecuting heretofore legal gun owners now for prosecuting heretofore legal speech. I mean, I'm sure that if this if this became law, you're going to have some outside group file a constitutional rights lawsuit to enjoin it. This is so clearly unconstitutional. But that's sort of a secondary point, isn't it? They came for the second, and then they came for the first. This is the Dan Prof Show. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, the 2016 election, both the election of President Trump and the run of Bolshevik Bernie Sanders, probably a few superdelegates away from being the nominee in 2016, was really a rejection of the system being rigged from coming from a lot of different directions. Uh, I famously said this about another kleptocracy, the one in which I live, Illinois, when I ran for governor a decade ago. That Illinois isn't broken like the politicians say it's fixed. In other words, if something is broken, that means it's not performing how it's supposed to perform. But that's not what's happening in Illinois, and it's not what's happening in D.C. The system isn't broken. It's fixed for the people on the inside who fleece the people that finance their lifestyles. Right? People are being fleeced by a government they finance. It was Illinois' kleptocracy, including uh, all that we have exported to D.C. from Barack Obama on down. And it was what uh, President Trump referred to as the swamp. Same dynamic, same deal. And so there is this desire for a set of rules by which everyone must play, as opposed to special rules and insider deals and unique cutouts, waivers for the politically connected, for the rich and or politically connected. And that's sort of still playing out in the Dem side. And it's interesting to to, read. little snippets I want to play. One is of Joe Rogan, the really popular podcaster. I'm not sure I totally understand it. I understand it at a certain level, but I mean, he's philosophically a hot mess, as you'll hear in a second. But there's something he's uh, happening upon when he offers this take on Bernie Sanders and why he's voting for Bernie Sanders in the primary. And then we're going to contrast this with the exchange Elizabeth Warren had with one of the attendees of a recent town hall. First, Joe Rogan. Who are you going to vote for in the primary? I think... 
I think I'll probably vote for Bernie. Him as a human being, when I was hanging out with him, and yeah. I, I believe in him. I like him. I like him a lot. What Bernie stands for is a guy who, well, look, you could, you could dig up dirt on every single human being that's ever existed if you catch them in their worst moment, and you magnify those moments, and you cut out everything else, and you only display, display those worst moments. That said... You can't find very many with Bernie. He's been insanely consistent his entire life. He's basically been saying the same thing, been for the same thing his whole life. And that in and of itself is a very powerful structure to operate from. Uh, okay. Yeah, there's no question. He has been uh, maniacally consistent, I would say, going back uh, four decades with him praising the wonders of Cuba and the Soviet Union. He's been an amazingly consistent, died in the wool red. Uh, I think it was Emerson who said, foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. But I know why it's attractive, because there's an authenticity that's otherwise lacking from the Johnny-come-latelys who are trying to form the end of the parade, form at the end of the parade that is moving against systems that are rigged against regular people. So now I give you an example of that, Elizabeth Warren, and this exchange she had with a gentleman about her plan not only for free quote-unquote college but also for student loan debt forgiveness on day one this gentleman asked well what about those who scrimped and saved and worked overtime to finance their child's college education so that they didn't graduate with debt do i get reimbursed we did the right thing and we get screwed that's the reaction he's not wrong uh 12 years ago now in 2008 during the depths of the great recession I uh, penned this piece for human events uh, calling for the need for a people who play by the rules party, political party, people who play by the rules, uh, because both parties under establishmentarians like Bush and Romney, and McCain, thinking about you know that time period, uh, and uh, obviously the party of elites even back then with Barack Obama being ascendant, they weren't for people who play by the rules. They were for... They were kleptocrats playing the kleptocratic game. Here's what I said at the time, and you may recall some of these things. I'm sure you will. You lived through it. When you hear that one in nine home mortgages are in foreclosure, remember that stat? One in nine home mortgages are in foreclosure during the depths of the Great Recession. When you hear that, the political media establishment complex pay attention to the one in foreclosure and treat the other eight as if they exist only as a source of spare parts to salvage the one. The people who play by the rules party is for the 88% of American homeowners who, without fanfare, budgeted for the home they bought and continued to pay their mortgage through the Great Recession and since, not to mention the rest of their bills. The people who play by the rules party is for the top 40% of income earners in this country, which gets all the way down to 55 grand a year, this is at the time, who pay 99.4% of all federal income taxes in the name of quote-unquote fairness. The people who play by the rules party is for the 99% of U.S. employers with fewer than 500 employees, the small businesses that don't have lobbyists, and then don't get bailed out by their Wall Street friends and government when they make bad strategic decisions. 
All that these employers do, the true entrepreneurial sector, is create jobs and generate wealth. Uh-huh. The people who play by the rules party is also a compassionate party, a party that recognizes America to be a place of second chances and that desires to help those who veered off course get back on track. What we are not, however, is a party that believes in the woozy bipartisan la-la land of socializing the consequences of individual private choices. And if you think a decade later, 12 years later now, we're still in that place, particularly the left is still trying to wrap its head around that. There was an interesting uh, poll, and this is, also explains why Bernie is so unpopular with the establishment. There's an effort by you know, Obama world and Clinton world to tube his candidacy. National Emerson College, uh, National Emerson College poll on uh, the supporters of particular candidates, if they will support any Democrat nominee in the general election. Compare these numbers. 90% of Warren supporters sell they'll support any Democrat nominee. The number for Sanders, 54. 54. They're still smarting over the election being rigged against Bernie by Hillary and the Democrats in 2016. And they're rightly skeptical that something similar is afoot now. And they're rightly skeptical that the rest of these candidates not named Bernie are just Bernie impersonators. They're pantomiming. I don't agree with their agenda, but I do agree that they have good BS detectors. This is the Dan Prop Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, momentous day in Washington, D.C. as President Trump becomes the first president of the United States to speak at the March for Life rally. And here's how he addressed the hundreds of thousands of the first president in history to attend the March for Life. We're here for a very simple reason, to defend the right of every child, born and unborn, to fulfill their God-given potential. For 47 years, Americans of all backgrounds have traveled from across the country to stand for life. And today, as President of the United States, I am truly proud to stand with you. That is Trump proudly standing with his base in a way that oftentimes previous Republican presidents, Republican office holders are jumpy about doing so. It's really one of the secrets, I think, to Trump's electoral success and to the loyalty he engenders. It's a two-way street. And now you start to understand why he's willing to stand with people who are regularly ridiculed by all of the cultural elites and proudly do so. And when he's called upon, and you know what, that matters. Trump went on to then describe some of the things his administration has done in advance of the position he's taken. We are preserving, protect innocent life. Unborn children have never had a stronger defender in the white house. And as the Bible tells us, each person is wonderfully made. And uh, on uh, particular personnel matters like judges. We have confirmed 187 federal judges. 
who applied the Constitution as written. And uh, freedom of conscience and speech and thought in the public domain. We are protecting pro-life students' right to free speech on college campuses. And if universities want federal taxpayer dollars, then they must uphold your First Amendment right to speak your mind. And if they don't, they pay a very big financial penalty, which they will not be willing to pay. Yeah, this is somebody who's attached to real world policies and personnel choices to his rhetorical position in a way that few Republican presidents have in the last 47 years. And just on the matter of the life issue, uh, for those of you who don't know, a little bit of a personal story. So I was adopted. I was born nine months before the Roe v. Wade decision. So as I often remark, had the law been a little bit different a little bit earlier, perhaps my birth mother wouldn't have made the loving decision that she made to put me up for adoption to find a home for me. Apparently, her belief was she couldn't care for me, clearly. And then the world would have been deprived of my wonderful intellect. And of course, that's not a world in which anybody would want to live. And I appreciate President Trump for making sure it's a world in which uh, at least doing what he can to make sure it's a world and a country in which life is respected from conception to natural death. This is the Dan Prof Show. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Proft Show. The interesting piece by a friend of the show, Lon Hee Chen in the Wall Street Journal, about uh, the moderates in the Democrat field. If you're not for a formal government takeover of uh, one-sixth uh, of our economy, meaning uh, health insurance and health care, then you're a moderate in the modern Democrat Socialist Party. But Lan He Chen has a good piece. He's over at the Hoover Institution, I should mention. He has a good piece about this. The uh, Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Mike Bloomberg health care reform plans, they claim they're proposing moderate, less disruptive approach to health care. Uh, when they advocate a public option rather than taking away the private health insurance of people who like their private health insurance, as Bernie would do and Warren would do, Medicare for all. Don't believe that that is a more moderate option. Lan He Chen writes, my research finds that such proposals would increase the federal deficit dramatically, destabilize the market for private health insurance, threatening health care quality and choice. History demonstrates, this is an axiomatic, this next statement, history demonstrates we should be skeptical of cost estimates that rely on presumptions about how the government will control prices. Political pressure upended similar financing assumptions in Medicare Part B only two years after the entitlement's creation. The Johnson administration in 68 and Congress in 72 had to intervene to shield seniors from premium increases. Objections from health care providers to lower reimbursement rates have regularly led to federal spending increases in Medicare and Medicaid. The result isn't hard to fathom. If premiums can't rise to cover program costs, the reimbursement rates are raised to ensure access to a reasonable number of providers who will pay. Taxpayers, of course, because uh, uh, these taxpayers were promised a self-sufficient government program. And so the thing continues to spiral out in terms of costs. And the way that you control costs 
in a centrally planned environment is through what the left complains about when it comes to private health insurance companies, rationing. And so visit Canada and have a discussion about the sort of medical innovation, technological innovation that goes down there, that goes on there as compared to here, the equipment they have versus what we have here, the wait times there versus the wait times here, the access to specialists there versus the access to specialists here. For more on uh, this topic and other general topics that relate to our older Americans, uh, we're pleased to be joined by the spokesman for AMAC. He is former assistant U.S. Secretary of State who ran a major portion of the U.S. House Oversight Committee and a national spokesman for AMAC. He is Robert Charles. He joins us now. Robert, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate being asked. AMAC.us is a great alternative to AARP. They, they truly are a conservative group. They represent the constitutional rights of people, First Amendment, Second Amendment, Fourth, Sixth. And they talk about things like federal solvency in Washington and, and, and the topic you were just talking about, which is the uh, the irony in, in anyone trying to promise something for nothing. Well, right. And of as, course, as medical. yeah. And of course, AARP was a big cheerleader for Obamacare and uh, is more or less a cheerleader for continuing down that path, regardless of the disagreement over pace between people who are trying to get to the same place. The world example, whether it's Canada, Great Britain, other parts of Europe, is very clear. You, you know, what you're hearing out of the people like Warren and, and Sanders is this Obama, is this Medicare for all. And, and I've read the bill in both chambers. It's a complete disaster. And you can go line by line. But ultimately, it would bankrupt the country. It wouldn't work. And at the end of the day, you'd end up with just bottom of the barrel sort of Soviet style medicine waiting for it around the clock and around the block. That's really even this. I, I like the, the, your reference to the Wall Street Journal piece, because even those who promise something less than that actually deliver just just as bad a, a, a product. You end up with rationing, low quality and high costs. And the reason for that is that you ultimately can't get the government is not the best provider of medical care. It never has been, never will be. The private sector is where you innovate and you get cost reductions tied to that. It's where you get all of the benefits of America's good medicine, which is why people from all over the world come to the United States. They don't come because of our government-driven medicine. It's because of the quality of our private sector medicine. And those over the age of 50 are rightly skeptical. I'll go a step further. They're knowledgeable about what socialism brings. You know, I spent time behind the Iron Curtain. I saw it up close and personal. It's horrific. I I needed actually, during Soviet-era time, I needed uh, some medical treatment in Poland for a staph infection, and it was just shocking. I mean, uh, lack of quality. And and you mentioned just a moment ago the lack of quality and and, and even of access. Uh, Another example is in the entire north of us, all of us here, the entire province of New Brunswick has only one MRI machine. So you'll wait a couple of years to get an MRI. Uh, How ridiculous. So at the end of the day, look, we have a a medical system like every other medical system in the world that is imperfect, but it's the best in the world. And I think we should stay with it. You mentioned at the outset with respect to AMAC, uh, the association of which you are national spokesman, that uh, their interest in federal solvency. So let's talk about that a little bit, because there doesn't seem to be much interest in federal solvency in either political party in Washington. This is a problem not just for the stability of our nation. It's also a problem in terms of acrimony, intergenerational acrimony. There was uh, some interesting arguments uh, this week, a number of pieces, including a new book coming out by William Lind about class war that's intergenerational in some respects. And think about the percentage of people under the age of 35 that want to live in a socialist society rather than in a you know quasi-free society like we have now. And part of that, the argument goes, is, look, you've had 
the boomers in particular who have broken the intergenerational compact between their ancestors and their progeny, maybe less Gen Xers, but m- millennials and younger feel like they're not going to be able to create as much wealth through home ownership. The, ac- the opportunities are not the same. The opportunities to be, be part of the ownership society more generally beyond even home ownership are not the same. And this is creating real outsider inside an outsider insider dynamic between the generations to say, you know, you guys basically cross the bridge and then cut it. And now I can't get across. So why not take from you to give back to me? Because you rigged the system for you. This, again, comes back to the basic philosophical argument that we were having a moment ago. Is more government better or is more government worse? The reason that we have a solvency problem, there are several contributing factors. But one is the idea that Social Security should essentially be unaccountable to pay for everything and run run wild. Uh, and that that will somehow drain the next generation because, which it would, incidentally, if the boomers are going to all be paid for that way. The reality is that if you go back to the origins of Social Security during FDR, this was not the intent of Social Security. And I think the irony here is that AMAC actually has a proposal out that creates a solvent Social Security environment through a series. It's complicated. It's a formula. But at the end of the day, what we're really talking about is that individual liberty brings with it individual responsibility, civic rights and all civil rights and all of the things we think of as freedoms that we'd like to see out there come with civic duties. And what that ultimately boils down to is that the individual is responsible, is the chief person responsible for their own destiny, which is why most younger people and actually many boomers long ago recognized that their own private savings, 401ks and some of the other tools that we have out there are much more likely to be the way that they live long and prosper than somehow depending on the government. And by the way, it goes well beyond retirement. 529 plans, saving early to avoid tax liabilities for educational expenses for your kids. All of those things point backwards to the idea that the private sector is what generates wealth. It's what generates security. It's what generates long term. So, but, but that necessarily means that at some point somebody's going to have to have or some buddies are going to have to have the courage to say we cannot uh, run. Absolutely. We can we cannot run a Medicare system where you pay one dollar in and get three dollars back in services. We you can't continue to run right. these Ponzi schemes. You are absolutely right. And, you know, I worked in the Ronald Reagan White House as well as George Herbert Walker Bush. I mean, those days on domestic policy more than foreign policy. And I will tell you that Reagan knew this way back 40 years ago when he was running. And this was this was the 40th anniversary of the year he ran for president. And, well, the second time when he ran in 1980. But he knew this very well and tried, in fact, almost got it over the line, a reform uh, with Tip O'Neill. Tip O'Neill ultimately backed out, Democrat uh, leader of the House at the time. But he knew that at the end of the day, you have to reform federal debt. You have to get the deficits down. The priority should not be on major spending by the federal government for either medical or retirement costs of the average American. At the end of the day, that is a responsibility that you have to plan for, you have to work for. At the same time, you know, I think the reason AMAC and a lot of members of AMAC think strongly about solvency is that, you know, at the end of the day, you'd like to believe that when you're on and gone, that you nevertheless have a strong America, that, you, that the intergenerational, uh, the sort of Burkean, uh, what you called it a social compact sort of job. Lockean, but the idea that there is a, a connection between the generations that went before and the generations that will come after is healthy. That's what a lot of these conservative Americans think, as they rightly should want to believe, that there is this bond. And for that bond to be true and strong, you cannot make forever in debt the next generation and the generation after that. You know, I think the smartest move is to cut federal spending, particularly entitlement spending over the long term, use a formula which keeps it fair, look out, grandfather in those that are here today, but cre- create a change in expectations 
expectations for the future. And there are people, people like Rob Portman, senator from uh, Ohio, who have been very vocal on this point. And I think Donald Trump recognizes that you have to protect older Americans at the same time you protect the solvency and the long-term sustainability of the American promise. He is Robert Charles. He's a former assistant U.S. Secretary of State, ran a major portion of the U.S. House Oversight Committee. He's a national spokesman for the two million member Association of, of Mature American Citizens, AMAC. All right, I'm not eligible yet, unfortunately, Robert, but I look forward to that many years down the road. Robert Charles, uh, <laughs> AMAC.us is the website. Robert Charles, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show we mark the uh, passing of venerable newsman jim lehrer at the age of 85 on thursday and uh, i came across uh, this online Jim Lehrer's Rules of Journalism, as uh, he defined it. This was the Jim Lehrer brand. He put together a brand book. These are my principles. This is what's going to inform the brand Jim Lehrer. And you know what? It did. And I practice journalism in accordance with the following guidelines, wrote Lehrer. Do nothing that I cannot defend. Do not distort, lie, slant, or hype. Do not falsify facts or make up quotes. I'm going to start checking these, though, the ones that are poor, perhaps most salient in today's media. Here's one. Check. Cover, write, and present every story with the care I would if the story were about me. Put yourself in the shoes of the subject. Oh, isn't that interesting? Assume there's at least one other side or version to every story. Assume the viewer is as smart and caring and good a person as I am. Check. How often do you see that presented in uh, the stories that you read or the programs you watched? I don't know that there's a McNeil Lair news report, uh, uh, the the, uh, modern equivalent of it in the present offerings on TV. Assume the same about all people on whom I report. Assume everyone is innocent until proven guilty. Assume personal lives are a private matter until a legitimate turn in the story mandates otherwise. Carefully separate opinion and analysis from straight news stories and clearly label it as such. Check. Do not use anonymous sources or blind quotes except on rare and monumental occasions. No one should ever be allowed to attack another anonymously. Check. CNN would cease to exist if this was a rule they followed. Do not broadcast profanity or the end result of violence unless it's integral and a necessary part of the story and or crucial to its understanding. Acknowledge that objectivity may be impossible, but fairness never is. Check. As in a court of law, you can not like someone you're covering, but you have to be fair, try and be even-handed in the coverage. What a concept. Journalists who are reckless with facts and reputation should be disciplined by their employers. Check. Again, another standard by which CNN and MSNBC and wide swaths of the D.C. press corps would be eliminated. 
My viewers have a right to know what principles guide my work and the process I use in their practice. Check. And finally, I am not in the entertainment business. Don't tell Jim Acosta. And uh, the Sunday, most of the Sunday talk show hosts and the panels of pundits. I'm not in the entertainment business. Yeah, uh, it's interesting, too, thinking about uh, Lair, who uh, I believe moderated more presidential debates than any journalist in history. And uh, if you remember, going back to 2012, uh, he moderated the first debate between President Obama and nominee Mitt Romney. And he was criticized for the handling of that debate. Remember, that was a debate where Romney turned the tables on Obama and actually bolted out ahead of the president before he forgot what he did in the first debate and frittered it away in the subsequent debates and, of course, the election in 2012. But uh, the the criticism Lair received from his colleagues was, hey, hey, why didn't you ask Mitt Romney about his 47% comment? Why didn't you push back on this? And why didn't you challenge that? And uh, he said... Uh, Lair in response to the criticism that he was very comfortable about his performance. He said he was there to facilitate debate rather than challenge the candidates. Yeah, imagine that facilitate debate rather than challenge the candidates. Compare that to forgetting the conservative side for compare that to CNN's last debate, the last debate before Iowa, where the panelists and one in particular, one of the moderators clearly took the side of Bernie Sanders versus Elizabeth Warren in the spat over who said what at a dinner they had some time ago. And how Jim Lehrer would have handled that matter altogether. First, he wouldn't have asked the question. Second, he wouldn't have taken a side. His point with respect to how he moderated that Obama-Biden, I mean, excuse me, Obama-Romney debate, is, um, hey, they have to do their own heavy lifting. They're the candidates. They're the men who think they're prepared to lead the free world. One had for four years. Why should I serve as the hatchet man for any of them, for either one of them? And isn't that the proper approach to a debate? You stand up there and you uh, stand on your own two feet up there. I'm not coming in to challenge you on this and challenge and, 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 and push the other on that. That's your job. Don't you have command of each other's records? Don't you understand where the policy distinctions are? Don't you know how to explain your vision for this country and contrast it with your opponents? Why should I be peppering you with questions, pressing you and pressing you and pressing you? I'm here to facilitate a debate. That's why we call them debates. They're not really anymore. They used to be at least closer approximation. I just love that. And I love that uh, Lair stood his ground in the face of that criticism because that's the model that should be followed. And, of course, it hasn't since and probably won't be, well, for the foreseeable future. Never say never. It's so interesting to me. Let me ask you this question, too, something to think about. Forget the obvious question here, which is you read these uh, dozen rules of journalism that uh, Jim Lair memorialized and uh, tried to live by. And I think they actually did a pretty damn good job. And you know, the obvious question is how many journalists in the beltway, big government press corps today 
practice any of these rules. One step back. How many journalists inside the Beltway Big Government Press Corps today and in uh, their outposts around the country in places like Chicago and L.A., how many of them have any established rules of professional conduct that bind them other than the rule the ends justify the means? Other than the rule that I'm here to advance a political agenda And so anything that advances that, however it's advanced, is uh, fair game. I mean, consider how we started this uh, the the press corps' attitude toward this administration. David Remnick, New Yorker, I go back to him all the time because he's one of the leading lights of journalism and leading outlets of deep thinkers, so they believe. And he said straight away, and he wasn't the only one, that the normal rules of journalism, whatever they even were at the time— of Trump's election and on the precipice of his inauguration were suspended. That their uh, raison d'etre was to take Trump out, preferably before 2020, but certainly in 2020. And how would Jim Lair have, how would he have responded to that? I mean, of course, he was still around until his passing the other day, but he had been out of uh, the limelight for a time. He'd been out, off the news desk for a time. It's sad. It really is the passing of an era, and it's the passing of an era uh, into an era that is much worse for the body politic, much worse for our republic, because it has no first principles that it abides other than the ends justify the means. This is The Dan Prof Show. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. And as Andrew Sullivan wrote in New York Magazine uh, at the end of last year, we all live on one big college campus now. So I guess uh, one way of uh, assessing where we are at culturally is to keep track of what's happening on college campuses. Nobody does that better than Heather McDonald, who's a contributing editor for City Journal, author of the bestseller The War on Cops, and she has written a new piece for City Journal, providing us with a case study on ethnic studies at Harvard University. Heather, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Don. I greatly appreciate talking to you. Uh, Always a pleasure. And uh, you write in your piece about uh, ethnic studies at Harvard specifically, but it's uh, representative of what's going on around the country on college campuses, about a professor named Lorja Garcia-Pena and um, her failure to get tenure at Harvard that led to all kinds of claims of uh, racism uh, on the campus. Yes, she's really emblematic of the ethnic studies victimology, which is itself emblematic of the victimology that is taking over American culture generally on a conveyor belt from the academy. She has made an academic career of claiming that she is the perpetual victim of racism and sexism from the academy. In fact, her career has been one long set of preferences. She's been given grants, catapulted to the most prestigious positions in in the entire university system in America uh, because she was a Dominican, uh, you know, female professor 
specializing in allegedly victimized Dominican identity, had she been uh, a white male with her absolutely meager scholarly output and her atrocious writing skills, she would be lucky to be at, at some community college you know, in, in the Rust Belt. But yet the, the surprising thing is not how, what you're describing in terms of the quality of her scholarship. It's that she was denied tenure at Harvard. I, I mean, is Harvard uh, reestablishing some standards of quality uh, that we're unaware of? I think this will be the last time Harvard actually applies meritocratic standards. You know, the, she was hired in the first place and showered with fellowships and grants in her time at Harvard, but this time, I guess there was some spine, some courage on the part of the tenure committee, but the outrage against the tenure denial, the uproar at Harvard and across the country, this was covered by NBC Nightly News, oh. uh, the New York Times, the Boston Globe, as if this was some national catastrophe of racism, make me quite skeptical that the next time a diversity candidate comes up from, for tenure, that Harvard or any other college will maintain a colorblind single standard of merit. It's, uh, it strikes me that uh, Harvard has any number of renowned professors that are black and brown, multiracial. So, I mean, I just the, the idea that this is just some lily white institution, that just doesn't square with the facts, does it? Well, this is what she's alleged, and this is, again, why... People should look at this case because if they want to understand the methodology, the strategy of academic victimologists who are increasingly taking over the rest of the world, they should just look at, at the moves this woman has made throughout her career. She engages in blatant lies, empirically demonstrable lies. She says Harvard is unable to hire uh, so-called scholars of color and it has no representation of uh, minority writers in its syllabi. She has stated this on the record. These claims are preposterous. Harvard has any number of black professors who are paid far more, uh, usually, than their, than their white colleagues, whether it's uh, Henry Louis Gates or Randall Kennedy at the law school, Roland Fryer, the economist, uh, Ronald Sullivan, his wife, Stephanie Robinson, Lawrence Bobo, the list goes on and on. So she's wrong on that count. She's also wrong on the fact that, oh, she claims that Harvard ha has no uh, minority writers in its syllabi. Again, look at the English department alone. I counted about two dozen at least uh, black writers that they've offered just in this last year uh, not to mention classes that are explicitly about racial victimology. So she is able to get away, or has been until now, able to get away with lying uh, in, in, in the press because ethnic studies has an entire ideology to justify that. She says in her book, which I delved into, uh, which is one piece of impenetrable academic jargon after another, um, that she, as like all ethnic studies uh, professors, eschews what we like to call the truth or what we like to call evidence-based discourse. Heather, hold that thought. We'll pick up right there when we get back on The Dan Brown Show. 
Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with the City Journal's Heather McDonald about uh, her synecdoche on ethnic studies, the case of Lorgia Garcia-Pena at Harvard. It, it seems like in her uh, in her scholarship, as you recounted in your piece, that she's doing her own one-woman 1619 project for her home country, the Dominican Republic. Right. That's right. She's completely rewritten the history there. It's completely revisionist history. The The whole agenda of ethnic studies, as I quote uh, a major uh, person in the field who's with the ethnic studies profession, professional organization, he says, it's not ethnic studies if it's not about challenging whiteness. So the, the basic theory, if, if, you're, if your child is contemplating taking a black studies or a Puerto Rican studies or an Asian studies course, this is what he's going to learn, uh, that the story of history throughout time is very simple. Whites oppress everybody else. That is, that is all ethnic studies is about. It's simply about oppression. So you, you, you put that story on the history of Hispaniola, the island in the Caribbean now housing uh, Haiti and the Dominican Republicans side by side, and the ethnic studies narrative is going to be all this is the only history of relevance there is that whites oppressed the poor people of color. Well, in fact, in the 19th century, Haiti and the Dominican Republic, both populated by people of color, were at each other's throats. They were trying to subjugate each other, to colonize each other, to impose martial law, to strip any kind of constitutional protections, all independently of any kind of colonial intervention. Now, this is not to say that there was a very horrible history, uh, starting with Columbus, of colonial rule on the island of Hispaniola. But it is also the case, Dan, we should be able to hold two truths simultaneously in our heads. It is also the case uh, that there was independent, self-generated efforts at oppression between Haitians and Dominican Republicans. Sure. And, and as, as Peña herself admits, there is a long history and a current reality on the part of the Dominican Republic of what she calls negrophobia. That is, people from the Dominican Republic are racist towards blacks, whether it's Haitians or anybody else. Well, I mean, in the Parsley Massacre in 1937 under the, the Dominican dictator Rafael Trujillo killed like 13,000, murdered 13,000 Haitians. So, I mean, to, to your point, this, this history that's sort of glossed over. Of course. And, you know, that's the big fallacy of the entire, whether it's the 1619 Project, the New York Times Project, that says that the essence of America is is to de, de, uh, enslave the black body. This is Ta-Nehisi Coates. Uh, the historical ignorance and the contemporary ignorance on the part of those people who try to reduce all of history to a simple morality tale of white versus black or white versus Hispanic 
is ridiculous. There's there's not a single nation, tribe in history that has not used violence, that has not sought uh, to exterminate uh, as many enemies as possible. The difference is the West developed technology that gave its, uh, you know, firepower that few other civilizations could possibly aspire to, but the the desire to oppress is absolutely universal, and the the principles to end that oppression, however, are uniquely Western. No other civilization has come up with concepts of tolerance, of individual rights, uh, of equality before the law. The very ideals that the left routinely invokes in order to claim that the, the white Americans are oppressive are ideas that are uniquely the product of the Western civilization that they so loathe and impugn. I, I want to go back to this uh, rundown you gave of some of the minority professors at Harvard. You included Ronald Sullivan, who's a noted law professor, dean at Harvard, who was bounced from Harvard because in his private life as a criminal defense attorney, he, at least for a time, joined the Harvey Weinstein defense team, and that was... I mean, remarkable that the response to Harvard was that you're gone because uh, he's a bad person, uh, that which is sort of the job of criminal defense attorneys to defend a lot of bad people. Uh, you would think uh, Harvard Law, per- the Harvard uh, Law School and Harvard generally would understand this. But Ronald Sullivan, uh, again, an African-American, accomplished law professor, Dean, he gets bounced under this culture, too. So, you know, you never know how it's going to metastasize or when it's going to turn on you. Yes, well, he was bounced from his position as the so-called resident dean, we're no longer allowed to use the term master, of a Harvard undergraduate dorm, Winthrop House. He still is at the law school teaching, but he was subjected to uh, just an incredibly embarrassing, uh, you know, uh, discriminatory procedure where the dean of all of Harvard uh, agreed with the Me Too feminist undergraduate ignoramuses who claimed that to engage in due process to provide uh, representation in a court of law makes somebody, uh, to somebody who's been accused, that is Harvey Weinstein, of sexual assault, makes somebody unfit uh, to supervise undergraduates and makes any environment <coughs> around that person unsafe for females. This is the most maudlin victimology. I mean, it is, it is a simply pathetic assertion of victimhood, but it's more than that, Dan. It's, it's an attack on the very principles that make the West such a magnet for people around the world, which is the presumption of innocence, the due process of law. And for Harvard's highest administrators to capitulate and agree with and put their imprimatur on these ignorant ideas is absolutely shocking. Heather McDonald, The City Drill. I want to pick up on the other side with an example of the gender dynamic. More with Heather McDonald when we return on The Dan Prof Show.
the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with the City Journal's Heather McDonald about uh, her synecdoche on ethnic studies. Well, and there's another example of this, too. I just want to get your reaction to because it's not just about uh, race. It's also about gender and it's it's all mixed up. There's a lot to unpack. But another story, Professor Stuart, uh, Stuart Regis, uh, who is a professor at the Paul G. Allen School of Computer Science and Engineering in Seattle. He was demoted, put on probation by that school for saying that uh, the, the, the issue with the underrepresentation of women in the field of computer science uh, as compared to their population generally is that there's just uh, not a lot of women that want to go into computer science. Well, let's recall, Dan, these are the people who claim to be the defenders of science against the know-nothing rednecks uh, who are the Republican Party or conservatives or Trump supporters. You know, there are facts that support the argument that the lack of 50-50 male-female representation in the, the hard STEM fields, the science, technology, engineering, and math, whether it's physics, computer science, or engineering, or economics, there are facts that show that is because of the average preferences, career preferences on the part of males and females. Psychology has known for decades that males, on average, we're not talking about individuals, I'm not talking about anybody's daughter. Your daughter may end up being the next Nobel Prize in in, in chemistry, for all I know, I'm talking about average distributions. On average, males gravitate towards ideas-based fields, towards abstract fields, towards systemizing, and females, on average, again, no comment about your individual daughter, uh, gravitate towards human fields, towards relational work, towards a sense of I'm doing things that help humanity in the immediate term, not the long term. That has been known about male-female psychology for decades, as well as males' preferences for risk, for competition, females' higher levels of what psychology is called neuroticism, which is, uh, you know, a greater sense of, of angst, of anxiety, a, a risk aversion. You're not allowed to say that. If you, if you put out these truths, these scientific truths, uh, you can lose your job. So who's, who's in favor of science? The enforcers of political correctness or those who prefer to make policy based on demonstrable fact? She is Heather McDonald, contributing editor for City Journal, author of the bestseller, The War on Cops. Heather, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.